The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Our vision is that by the year 2041, that we would see the San Fernando Valley saturated with gospel-centric, neighborhood-focused, healthy churches that plant other churches. If we want to change Los Angeles, we got to change the valley. We believe that God wants to do this. But regardless of location, we all share the same family values. And one of those values is that we serve the neighborhoods we call home. That is one of Story City's values. What does it mean? It means that we will live in and learn from the cities that we hope to impact and that we will be more generous to our neighbors than they are to us. That is one of our values. And as a church, we are committed to living out an inconvenient generosity. Generosity is something that God talks about, but inconvenient generosity is sacrificial generosity. And we believe that is what God wants us to be and to do. And we want that inconvenient generosity to mark our stories and the stories of all those that we interact with here in the valley. Now, collectively, our stories are a part of God's redemptive story for Burbank, for the valley, for Los Angeles, and the world. Now, speaking of the world and inconvenient generosity, can I just say thank you for those of you who helped us so much to get our crew down to Grecia, Costa Rica to shoot the documentary at Residence of Life. I can't tell you how amazing it was. Yes. We can't wait to share those stories with you. The, I, I wish uh, we, could, we could show you the look on their faces when we got to give them the gift certificate for all of the house moms and the psychologists and everybody who is going to get uh, taken care of, get a little bit of respite that they don't normally get. Uh, it, it just, they were blown away that, by that. But they were also almost to the point of tears, not just that you guys bought them uh, spa day, but that we gave them materials in Spanish that are healthy devotionals. They were so lacking in, in devotionals and things they could do just to know Jesus more themselves that we, we bought them uh, some books to start those libraries for each of the casas, and they were absolutely overwhelmed. So again, uh, the, we'll get to the trailer. I can't wait to show it here. We got to get to the trailer because we got to raise a whole lot more money to finish the documentary. But uh, you guys are going to see. There's two lessons at the heart of this project. The first is you guys know our major is foster care and adoption. And the reason we care about foster care and adoption, in case you don't remember, is if we want to see things like recidivism, fatherlessness, if we want to see problems dealt with like uh, education in poor communities, if we want to see things like homelessness and food insecurity and drug addiction changed, we have to hit those things upstream. We know that children in the foster care system, that because they haven't experienced healthy families, that when they age out, they often end up in jail or dead. But many of them who don't end up there right away are dealing with all of these things and contributing to these things that we can address by creating healthy families. And so here's the two lessons at the heart of this project. When looking at foster care and adoption where the need is so great, we may feel as if we aren't enough or can't do enough to make any sort of difference. But you will see how saying yes to even small steps makes a massive impact. That's the story of Erica, the director of Residence of Life. Secondly, you're going to see how creating a gospel community makes a family environment where redemption, restoration, healing, and hope are a part of everyday life. And that's something that our kids here in Los Angeles can experience too. With a 16th of the resources, Costa Rica Residence of Life has done this. We can do it here in Los Angeles too.
And we believe this documentary will challenge and encourage you to make a difference as we serve our fellow Angelinos. Um, yeah, so there's a lot there. We're excited about it. I appreciate it. As far as this message goes this morning, we can't cover every verse in 1 Corinthians. So again, I want to remind you like we do every week, please be reading along in 1 Corinthians. Get to something. If you have any questions, hit us up. We'd be happy to answer anything that we can. Uh, But it will help you. Just read through 1 Corinthians multiple times. It's a letter. It's meant to be read all at once. So reading it all at once over and over will help you understand what we're talking about anyway. Now, one last thing. Today, we will be addressing some PG-13 matters, nothing explicit. However, if you do have kids in the room and you want to uh, maybe think about how you're going to handle that, please feel free. Uh, We're not going to take it personal. I just want to make sure you know that that is the, the, the deal that we're doing today. So, good? All right, would you guys pray with me? Father God, this week has been filled with such incredible joy as we are looking at these stories of heartbreak, these stories of devastation, these stories of trauma, but seeing your restoration, your healing, and your hope shine through. But Lord, that isn't the case for many people in our communities. Lord, in the last couple of weeks, we've experienced things like the shooting in Beverly Crest and Monterey Park and, Father, the releasing of the tape of Tyree Nichols. And Lord, we know specifically our black communities and our Asian communities have been dealing with violence, racism, hardship for a long time. And I pray, Lord, as we wrestle with these things and what they mean for us as a society, that you would break our heart the way that your heart is broken for our local communities. Lord, for too long, your church has not paid attention to the poor, the broken, the marginalized. Lord, we have not called out for justice the way that you have demanded us to. You are a God of justice as much as you are a God of holiness. So, Lord, specifically, as we wrestle through these issues, Lord, our heart breaks. We ask that you would help your church to be the place of healing, hope, restoration, but not just inside of our churches, Lord, that it would extend to the communities around us the way that you have called your church to be on mission, the way that you have called our church to model, the way that you love, the way that you serve, to show a picture of hope, healing, restoration, and redemption. I pray that you would help us to be, Lord, less of your mouth because you already are and more of your hands and feet. I pray that we would bring you glory, that we would honor you in the way that we live, in the way that we care, in the way that we serve, in the way that we love. Help us to be good reflections of you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. You guys all ready for this? Okay. Josh, I'm not going to get fired, am I, after this service? Am I all right? Okay, good. Yeah, I am going to. Yeah, sure. Josh, sure, sure, Jared. Yeah, sure. As we focus on this passage in Corinthians, today we're looking at chapter 5 in particular, I want to remind us of a couple foundational pieces. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth as they're navigating what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus amid an influential and wealthy city that was very much like Los Angeles is today. According to one author, Corinth deeply valued competitiveness, self-achievement, self Promotion, self-sufficiency, wisdom, knowledge, autonomy, and freedom as the ethos of their city. 
sounds just like us. And so Burbankonians and Angelinos have much in common with ancient Corinth. Now, it's been about five years since Paul planted this church. And as he experiences a letter he's wrote to them, and they've written a letter back, and he's had some people come to, uh, to experience the church in Corinth, and they've come back to talk to him, he finds out this place is a mess. And one of the reasons that the church is such a mess is because, uh, mess is because they have basically said, hey, we, we're, we're, we weren't Jews. We didn't come up with this upbringing. And so we're taking Jesus and we're just sort of adding him to our ethos, adding him to our life, adding him to our own philosophies instead of letting Jesus redefine their ethos, their life, and their philosophies. Instead of living as in their new identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. They are, are just sort of, like I said, adding Jesus to it, and that doesn't work. It doesn't work because God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And so Paul is honest and frank, sometimes brutal in his addressing of it, but he does it for the purpose of restoration and healing and hope. And so he's going to deal with these issues head-on today. So are we. For those of you taking notes, this is the big idea for the day. A healthy gospel community, a healthy gospel community requires healthy accountability. It requires healthy accountability. We're going to see that healthy accountability is about God's standard for God's people. That accountability requires recognition, judgment, and action. And that it must be done with grace and love for the purpose of restoration. Okay. Good so far? All right, now here's the deal. To understand our context, we have to understand Paul's understanding of sexuality. Now, Paul tells us the issue was, um, wasn't one that the church in Corinth had written him about. They didn't bother bringing this issue up in the story. No, it's people who have traveled to Corinth and they're like, hey, Paul, there's a problem here. Uh, <laughs> it's not being addressed, it's not being handled. They're bragging about it. When we discussed it, they're bragging about it. We need you to step in and handle it because there is a real issue. And so not only did they have someone whose behavior was seen as wrong, even among the pagans, now that's a standard, (laughs) but they're bragging that their tolerance of that behavior was evidence of their enlightened Christian views. They're like, look, we've arrived at a level of wisdom beyond you, Paul. We took it to the next level. Paul's like, that's not the next level. That's off a cliff. Let's pull back a little bit. Take a look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. We'll see what the issue is. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Exactly. That's a problem. And you are arrogant? Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with an old, uh, old leaven or with leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity 
and truth. Now, to understand the seriousness in which Paul takes this issue, we need to understand the Bible's view on sexuality. In the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon is actually chapters 5, 6, and 7. But in the beginning, chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this is radical even for Jesus' day. Jesus is talking about here that he cares deeply about the intent of our hearts. And Pastor Sam Albury writes that when Jesus says that looking at a woman or man lustfully violates the law, he's saying that sexual integrity matters and should be honored by everyone else. He's saying that sexual integrity is so precious that it must not be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. Jesus talks about sex outside of marriage several times, but why does he care so much about sexual integrity? To answer that, we need to talk about what sex is for. You're like, this is exactly why I came to church today. (laughs) Can't wait. I would argue that our cultural narrative is to say that to deny ourselves of sex is to deny our humanity. To deny ourselves from pleasure, to deny ourselves from sexual pleasure is to deny our humanity. But the scriptural narrative says our sexuality is only one part of our identity and our calling. That our scriptural narrative narrative says that our sexuality is only one part of our identity and calling. So the church has done a terrible job. I know, shocking, right? The church has done a terrible job with something. The church has done a terrible job in dealing with this topic. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. I recall speaking to one couple who was raised in the purity culture. And, uh, and, and look, I'm not saying purity is bad. Obviously, I'm preaching about this now. But the culture itself was toxic. And they were raised in this purity culture so much so that sex is bad that when they got married and went to have sex, they couldn't do it. They felt guilty. It lasted almost the whole first year of their marriage. They misunderstood God's intention for it. And it devastated this thing that God had intended as Beautiful. The church has traditionally taught that sex has two primary functions. Procreation and being the height of romantic connection within the marriage and for the sake of the marriage, right? You guys agree with that? You guys know it's okay to talk back in church, right? It's all right. I appreciate it, amen, every once in a while. It's okay, good. Amen is the Christianese word for yeah, let's get it. It's good, all right, so we're there, Okay. Now, while both elements have the, 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 both of those elements have truth to them, relegating sex to these two purposes leaves us short of the full understanding of God's intention. Sex is definitely for procreation. That's, that's true. That is true, or else sex wouldn't lead to procreation. We see this established with Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis chapter 1. It continues as an important part of the Old Testament fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. If sex didn't lead to procreation, that wouldn't be possible. The Bible also says in Genesis chapter 2 that the two became one flesh. And so that is also a purpose of it. Albury writes, Christians understand this framework for sex to be the outworking of a deeply positive message about the meaning of male and female and of our deep connection as human beings. 
One flesh describes more than a simply more than simply a bond of adult love that could exist irrespective of gender or a number of people involved. In the Bible, one flesh is actually telling us a story, a story that involves all of us. It both sets the God-given boundary for sex and points to its glory. In other words, one flesh is reuniting two people separated when Eve was taken from Adam's side. Sex inside of marriage is a spiritual and symbolic reunion. Oneness, then, is the second person of sex. So procreation and oneness. This is why in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 when answering about marriage and divorce because he's pointing back to the reasons for it. We'll come back to that again later. But another thing sex is for in the context of marriage is a way to give ourselves away. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul tells the husband his body belongs to the wife and the wife that her body belongs to the husband. Side note, this is not about ownership. Let's be clear. Because too many dudes have used this as abuse. It's not to be treated as ownership. We must look at it in light of what Jesus said about the value of sexual integrity and how Jesus said the value of sexual integrity that he seriously wants husbands and wives to value that in each other. And so if we are respecting each other's sexuality in the context of marriage and we understand the purpose is to glorify God, we can't use it as ownership. And yet there is this sense of giving away and sacrificing for that we see explained in Ephesians chapter Five verses 22 and 23. And we see that it's a picture of what Jesus did for his bride, the church. That he gave himself for her. Now Paul specifically commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So that's how we know that this is pointing back to that section. So here's the deal. Sex is good and right and holy within the context of marriage because it helps fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It reflects the triunity of God by bringing together male and female separated in the creation of Adam and Eve, and it points us forward to Jesus through the sacrificial giving of self for the spouse. That's the framework that we need to look at this discussion that Paul's talking about when he's like, hey, we have a problem, and the problem is that what is happening that you're bragging about falls outside of the framework uh, that God designed this relationship to be. And so Paul addresses this misguided sexual ethic. Let's go back to our scripture for today, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. It says this. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's what he's talking about. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Right away, Paul reminds the church in Corinth and ultimately us of a command that he's already given. This is something he's already said. I wrote you in a previous letter and he reinforces a standard that's been given to us by Jesus. Paul is not creating something new here. He is reinforcing a standard that is laid down by Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Paul is also clear this is not a suggestion. You can almost feel the pastoral sigh when he's like, Are you kidding me? This is why I told you guys. 
Paul says, do not associate with sexual immoral people. What is sexually immoral? Anything that falls outside of the framework that we talked about above. But Paul knows this can cause some confusion. And so Paul now has to go back and clarify who he's talking with. Verse 10, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave it. I love the sarcasm. Right? Paul's like, I, I get it. You, like, Calm down. I know your argument. And he lets us know this conversation does not apply to everyone, but it's directed at those who are intentionally apprenticing Jesus. Now, he's going to get even more clear, but for now, I want us to see that God holds his people to a standard. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives, and his plans and his purposes are so much healthier than our plans and our purposes, despite sometimes what we think or what we feel. See, God's plans don't create the drama and trauma that our plans do. For those of you taking notes today, this brings us to our second observation for the day. Healthy accountability requires recognition, judgment, and action. Healthy accountability requires recognition, judgment, and action. Look at verse 11 with me. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Now, Paul seems to be pretty severe here. I see some of you looking confused. Did I not say the first point? I did. Healthy accountability is God's standard for God's people? Healthy accountability. Okay, good. I got you now. I got you. Healthy accountability is about God's standard for God's people. The second one is healthy accountability requires recognition, judgment, and action. And, and, and the issue here is that this seems to, to, to I don't know, stand out and, and, and maybe rub us the wrong way. I don't know about you, but aren't we supposed to be a people of grace? What Paul is pointing out here, though, is that we are not to celebrate, encourage, or minimize a person who claims to be apprenticing Jesus with their words, but is living a life radically opposed to them to him in their actions. He's not talking about hating them or shunning them or acting holier than thou to them. He's talking about the fact that if we pretend an issue does not exist and we ignore it, even though it's obvious, then we are not actually loving our own family. Because we're not helping our family become Christ-like. And that is the purpose. We forget as Western Christians that the Bible wasn't written to individuals. The Bible was written to communities, gospel communities. And together we are community. We are apprenticing Jesus as a family. With all of our junk on the table. We're in this messy journey together. That means that we've got to struggle together. We're going to celebrate together. We're going to cry together. We're going to have arguments together as we learn what it means to live on mission with Jesus. This is why, though, Paul says, like, hey, you can't let this go because it doesn't help people become Christ-like. In essence, we're saying that we're good with what they're doing when we don't address it. This is exactly why Paul brings up eating with them. Today, in the Middle East even, it still exists. If you sit down to eat with somebody, it's a sign of peace. It means I accept you. I'm good with you. We're good. Paul's saying we shouldn't be good with them. Why? Go back to verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven that's like can be yeast or anything that ferments or anything that makes something puff up leavens the whole batch of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He brings up Passover because part of eating Passover was eating unleavened bread. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, tolerating sin without dealing with it in the church family, don't forget this is not for those outside of the church. He's specifically talking about those apprenticing Jesus. That not dealing with it doesn't lead to that person looking more like Christ. Instead, it changes the church family and makes us all less mature and less Christ-like. I don't know about you, but this brings up another point of contention. In order for us to recognize that something is wrong, we have to measure it against something that is not, correct? You know what we call that? Judging. Ah. Wait, doesn't the Bible say not to judge? What the heck is happening here? Let's go back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, 1 to 6 says this. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. See, there's always been hypocrites in the church. Just pointing it out now. First, take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's. Did you catch that? He said, do something first, and then do something else. He didn't say, don't do it. Verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus didn't say, don't, do not judge followed by an exclamation point or a period. He said, do not judge followed by a clarification of what type of judgments to make, when to make them, and how to make them. Matthew 7 in context isn't a passage about not judging. It's a stern warning against judging improperly. He says, hey, you know, it's almost better not to do it. But if you're going to do it, you better make sure you do this right, with the right heart and the right attitude, or there's going to be a problem for you. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you better be certain that you're not doing this out of arrogance or holier than thouness. It's not even a word. I just made it up. He wants us to be certain that if we're going to judge, it's the right reason, the right way. Why? Because Jesus always cares about the heart intent behind everything. That's Jesus' number one deal. Jesus tells us not to give our sacred things to dogs or pigs. That's impossible to do without making some judgments, especially about someone who is a dog or a pig. Some of you in this room are like, I've dated both. I get it. <laughs> Later in chapter 7, Jesus says we must carefully inspect the spiritual fruit of anyone who claims to speak for God, rejecting those who bear bad fruit and listening to those who bear good fruit. Think about it. If we're forbidden to make any moral or spiritual judgments, we would have no objective way to distinguish between truth and error. It's the idea that morality and truth are relative. Who am I to judge what is right just because it's not right for me doesn't make it not right for him. But this idea isn't accepted anywhere else in our thinking except in spiritual matters. Somehow we let it go there. But imagine this. Imagine if a engineering student was arguing that her calculations didn't matter so long as they work for her. Would you drive across her bridge? No. We would demand that we judge that according to a standard. Does it work? What is the fruit? Did your bridge hold up? And I'm not going to be the first to find out. 
Why? Why do we reject the idea of judging? I think one of the biggest reasons, besides how we feel when we're judged, we don't want people to hold us accountable, but two, one of the biggest reasons is that we value very highly in this culture a trait we call tolerance. Now, today, tolerance is mostly defined as allowing others to believe and live in ways we don't agree with, support the right to do so, and refuse to judge their viewpoint and actions as either being right or wrong. Just do whatever you want. That's tolerance. As a result, in most circles, criticizing somebody else's beliefs or moral choices is considered to be a sure sign of arrogance or ignorance. Now, it's not to say that an emphasis on tolerance is a bad thing. Rightly understood, tolerance is a great thing. But unfortunately, tolerance no longer means what it used to mean. It once meant granting others the freedom to be wrong. It didn't stop us from critique or criticism. It simply sought to offer evaluation in a spirit of grace and humility. We could talk with people, disagree, and still be okay. And still say, I hold my beliefs. It doesn't make me a bad person. You hold your beliefs. That's fine. We can say that we disagree with them. I don't have to agree with you. And we can still be friends. But if we follow crowd blindly into tolerance where everything is acceptable, everything is good, we will not only go down a trail that differs from what Jesus said, but will defy logic, obscure truth, and propagate sin. Now, Paul wraps up this section in verses 12 to 13 by reminding us that God judges the world so it's not our place to. See, the early Christians lived in a culture under a government system riddled with sin. Marriage was held in low esteem. Sexual excess and deviance were celebrated. Infanticide was an accepted form of family planning. The Colosseum was regularly filled with bloodthirsty crowds cheering violent death. Christians didn't have charitable deductions or freedom of speech protections, just the promise of jail and martyrdom for the continuation of their faith. And yet, the Bible is strangely silent when it comes to harsh judgments of the Roman government, its leaders, or soldiers. Mostly, it reminded Christians they were no longer to live that way. The reason was simple. The early church understood it wasn't their job to judge and condemn the pagans around them. Their job was to win them over because that's true love. Judging the non-Christian by a Christian standard only encourages non-Christians to hear us say, I hate you, not I love you. That's probably why the Bible forbids us to do it. See, even if we successfully convince non-Christians to live by Christian standards or we legislate it, without bringing people into a relationship with Jesus, all we have done is populate hell with nicer and more moral people. Let me say that again. Even if we successfully convince non-Christians to live by Christian standards, we encourage morality, or we successfully legislate it, if we don't bring people into a relationship with Jesus, all we've done is populate hell with nicer and more moral people. Morality, moralism is not Christianity. In the case of judging Christians, the purpose is always to discern and to restore. And so we have a responsibility to judge and hold one another accountable spiritually, not to bring guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are nailed to the cross. That's done. But conviction is brought by the Holy Spirit, and there is a difference. And so we must hold one another accountable spiritually, not to bring guilt and shame, but to restore one who is caught in the web of sin. We must always look at our for ourselves first, though, to avoid making judgments God doesn't care about. But when Scripture is clear, we cannot avoid sin. We must talk about it. 
Refusing to do so in an attempt to avoid being labeled judgmental is not an act of grace. It's an act of disobedience. Loving someone enough to call them on their sin in order to bring about healing is a true act of grace and love when it is done in a graceful and loving way. Catch that? This brings us to our third and final observation for today. Healthy accountability must be done with grace and love for the purpose of restoration. Healthy accountability must be done with grace and love for the purpose of restoration. If we're going to talk about accountability in the church, we had better make sure it's something God says is wrong and not something we personally have a problem with in the name of God. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of the harshest judgments I've ever endured from the church had nothing to do with scripture. They came from not following church rules. In some areas, the Bible is not clear, but it's not by accident. It's not a mistake. God wasn't rushing to meet a deadline. God leaves us with a lot of freedom and latitude, and he also leaves us a space so we have to listen to the Holy Spirit. He makes us rely on his spirit so that we know how to follow him. We put ourselves in dangerous company with the Pharisees of old when we judge others in an area where God has not spoken definitively in. We could end up judging things God could care less about while missing the things he cares most about. Additionally, we need to carry out accountability in the right way. Often in church culture, we'll have somebody who's offended by behavior they perceive as wrong, and instead of simply going and talking to the person, they run to the leaders instead. That's evil. It is wrong. It doesn't follow Matthew 18. It is going against scripture. Paul says we are to come to the people in sincerity and truth. And yet many of us have all kinds of excuses and reasons why we don't do that hard work, why we don't have a loving conversation with the person to see them mature. That's the point. Oftentimes accountability is more about moral superiority than lovingly want to see the person grow into spiritual maturity. Listen, family, if we don't come in kindness, love, and grace, and a willingness to walk with them in a long and messy journey of growing into maturity in Christ, then we have no business holding them accountable or judging them. Let me say that again. If we don't come in kindness, in love, and in grace, with a willingness to walk with them in the long and messy journey of growing into maturity with Christ, then we have no business holding them accountable or judging them. We must be willing to walk with somebody we're going to hold accountable to because it's about restoration and healing. We want to understand where they're coming from. We want to help them see what the Bible says on a topic, and we want to see them grow into maturity. And if we're going to hold them accountable, then we're going to walk with them in that as we love them and are gracious to them and see them in that place. In verse 5, Paul tells us why he's having us remove the person from the gospel community. Why does he kick them out? Verse 5, he says, to hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that... His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The whole purpose is so that they only temporarily suffer in order to assure that they are apprenticing Jesus with their actions and not just with their lips. Paul writes the Corinthians in his next letter about the man who had to be corrected. The outcome is repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. If anyone has caused pain, He has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he might be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. 
I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you're obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan if we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul says, look, it's time to bring this guy back into reconciliation. It's, it's okay. I've forgiven him. You can forgive him. Let's show him the love and the grace and welcome him back in because he's changed. This is what we wanted to see. This is the purpose, the outcome. Okay, family, that was a lot. Here's what we need to remember today. Healthy accountability is about God's standard for God's people. That accountability requires recognition, judgment, and action. And that is to be done with grace and love for the purpose of restoration. We cannot have a truly healthy gospel family unless we have healthy accountability lived out in healthy relationships. Let me offer one last bit of encouragement as you wrestle with how we're going to do this. If you're going to practice healthy accountability, always err on the side of grace. Amen? Let's pray. God, your mercies are incredible. You are beautiful. I thank you that you are a God who is so gracious. I thank you that your love for us, your acceptance of us, your forgiveness of of us is not based on how good we are, how holy we are, how just we are, how much we look like you, but God, in our broken mess of selves, you walk in and you bring your hope, your healing, your salvation, your restoration because you are a good God, not because we're good people. But I thank you that we have been made good in you, that we have been given the righteousness of your son Christ. I thank you that you continue to restore and renew us and give us hope. And so, Lord, as we try to figure out how to be a healthy family, would you Help us to be good listeners to your spirit. Father, we know that prayer is not about getting from you. It's about changing our hearts to want what you want. And so would you change our hearts, change our minds, change our lives. We love you. Family, if there's anybody here today that wants to know more about walking with Jesus, we want to encourage you to head to our next steps table, to find somebody to pink lanyard. We'd love to have a gospel conversation with you. We'd love to pray with you, to hear your story, to get to know you. Amen.